0: Put your VHS tapes in and let the fun
1: begin.
0: my name is vex and my pronouns are she them
1: i'm deanna my pronouns are they them i'm sarah and my pronouns are she her
0: and this is a crack in the classics a podcast for looking deeper into nostalgic media
1: uh so why don't we start by saying kind of what we maybe want the podcast to be yeah Well, I guess for me, um, I'm interested in kind of starting a dialogue uh, for people that obviously have classic movies that they watched a lot as kids and kind of going over them and analyzing them with a critical eye um, and just kind of seeing the influence that they had on us and how they shape some of our views as a society and as individuals. Yeah. Bex?
0: Yeah. So, uh, uh more nuanced way to appreciate the media that we already love and to look at it more critically
1: yeah not necessarily to like discredit them or hate on them but just to kind of raise awareness like nothing is perfect and i think being able to have these conversations can help us enjoy them in a healthier way um and just being aware nothing is perfect and there are issues with with things and that's okay just the aftercare of talking about it is what's important I also feel like it might be helpful for people who for full context uh we live in Florida and you know being in Florida you have a lot of people who are obsessed with like Disney in particular uh which I think is going to be one of our bigger powerhouses of the nostalgic media <laughs> at least yeah, at first absolutely. um and so I feel like those people maybe love it so so much that they can't hear any criticism of it Mm -hmm. and so for me i want to look at things and be like it's okay to appreciate the good things about a lot of these movies and to have a place for them in your heart while also acknowledging yeah the the shitty shit that happens Yeah, so you're not perpetuating it, and Mm -hmm. that way media can kind of evolve. Um, And it, for me, has been kind of like an inner child healing thing, where I'm just looking through things I grew up with and understanding the impact they had on the way I viewed the world. So I think it'll be kind of healing in a way to kind of go over that and just see what's up and see what bias has slipped into the media from animators and from people that are very real in making this art for us, so... Mm-hmm. It'll be a fun journey. All right, cool. Um, I think uh, where we are going to be doing more than Disney. I think we're largely kind of starting with Disney to work through um, a bunch of the the classics there. And, and this time round, we're going to be doing the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is definitely something that was special to me growing up. So I'm excited to kind of break ground. Woohoo! Yeah. I'm a fan of this movie just because I love France and French things.
0: <laughs> I am <I'm> not partial <laughs> to France or the French, but uh, I do have a lot of love in my heart for Esmeralda and Clopin.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Social justice duo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this movie was released June 21st, 1996. Um, and I think... We want to go into kind of the making of it before we go into the analysis. So, Sarah. Cool. So, this film uh, was directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, directors of Beauty and the Beast, and produced by Don Hahn, producer of Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. It belongs to the era known as the Disney Renaissance. Disney Renaissance, Disney World, Disney World. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, came out kind of in the same time as a lot of uh, really good hits there. Um, this is the second out of three Disney movies that Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz collaborated on uh, for the music. They also collaborated on Pocahontas and Enchanted, so kind of interesting there. Um, for the most part, Alan Menken, I think, worked on the score, and then Steven did the songs, but they also collaborated, obviously, on the whole, the thing as a whole. Um, all right, and then we have to the cast, we have Tom Hulse as Quasi. Um, so originally they had planned on having Quasi being an older part, um, so they considered uh, Mandy Patinkin. But get this, he collided with the producer's demands. That is a quote from the Disney wiki. So not sure what happened there, but something happened there maybe. Um, And in the process of the movie, they ended up making Quasi a little bit younger. Um, And so they went with Tom Hulse and he was allowed to do his own singing, um, he basically had to like prove he could do it. He sent in a demo of himself singing out there and they let him do his own singing. You just got to put yourself out there and dreams come true. Wow. Yeah. Um and then we have Demi Moore as Esmeralda. She did not do her own singing. Her, her singing was done by Heidi Mollenhauer. Apparently they asked Demi if she wanted to. Um and she was just like, "No, you better find somebody else." So, she probably should have said that about the role in general, being a white person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh Shots fired. <laughs> shots fired. Um, we have Tony J as Frollo. He's also the voice of Shere Khan. We have fun fact there. We have Kevin Klein as Phoebus, um, also known as the voice of Tulio from Road to El Dorado. Phoebus has Tulio vibes, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Then we have Paul Candle as Clopin. And Victor, Hugo, and Laverne, the three gargoyles voiced by Jason Alexander, Charles Kimbrough, and Mary Wicks, respectively. Now, Mary Wicks um, did pass away before the end of this film. So her her last few lines, I think, were done by Janet Withers. Um, But Mary was the original pick for the role, um, and she did most of it. And then lastly, we have a fun fact about this movie. This is the first Disney film with a post-credits scene. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's and that's we all so know nice. that Disney's well-known for it now, but uh, this was the first one of their movies that they did it. I honestly, I've seen the movie, but I don't even think I've seen the like, after-movie credit. I don't watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's long, but but still, that started like decent tradition.
0: I just found a YouTube clip of the Disney end credits so that I can see this post-credit scene. I heard. Oh hell yeah! Oh, it's just the um, the larger Gargoyle saying good night everybody and being very excited.
1: Oh, that's cute. Like meta and like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Like in Aladdin, like the major look thing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. They started off small. Yeah. So I have a brief summary of the movie. Um, it follows disfigured Quasimodo, the bell ringer of Notre Dame Cathedral, who bides his time locked away in a tower. With only gargoyles to keep him company, And Quasimodo longs to be with other people, leading to this chance encounter with the enchanting Esmeralda. Uh, when the beautiful young woman catches the attention of Quasimodo's guardi- guardian, Sinister Frollo, Quasimodo must help to keep her out of his clutches. I want to start, just kick everything off. Um, one of my, like major issues with the movie is they do use a very outdated um, term to refer to Esmeralda and the people. other Romani people in the film. Um, they use the G word slur. We won't be using it on the podcast to refer to her at all um, or you know, just using it at all. It's uh, It was used in English law to describe a group of nomadic people, um, and it, it just obviously be, was used as a slur um, as well. I, th- I hear people sometimes in situations where they feel like they were shorted or stiffed in a situation, they'll say I was gypped um, and that stems from this slur. So I just kind of wanted to spread that information. Cause I feel like this is on the rise of uh, kind of spreading information about this, this word as a slur, but I, I've met a lot of people that don't realize. Um, so just wanted to kind of put that out there to start this off. Um, and then ask. For, like, major themes, religion is is a very obvious Ooh. one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I got stuff to say about religion. Oof. Go off. So. <laughs> um, oh, wait, real quick. Do we want to talk about the differences between the book and the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. That it was based on? Because mine kind of touches on that. Yeah, I'll go. I'll do that real quick. Okay. We can edit There was wait, a book. I, I, there was um, so yeah. So the movie was actually based on a, his, a historical novel by Victor Hugo, who's also the author of Les Misérables. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, the book came out March sixteenth, uh, eighteen thirty one. Um, My birthday. <laughs> well, not eighteen thirty one. No, you can prove how long you've been twenty five. <laughs> um. So. <A> while. <laughs> Yeah. So the, the movie, it's very loosely based on the book. It's got the same like settings, uh, 15th century France. It's like the, I think mid 1400s. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, the character names are the same and some of the major plot events are similar. So like Esmeralda, she still helps Quasimodo, uh, during the festival of fools when he's like voted the king of fools or whatever. Um, She helps him out there. He falls in love with her, but she, uh, is in love with Phoebus. And of course there's still the triangle of Frollo who is like lusting after her. Um, and there's a night where she runs off with Phoebus and they're in a room and he kisses her shoulder and Frollo is spying on them. And when he kisses her shoulder, Frollo storms in and, um, stabs, stabs Phoebus and oh. es- Esmeralda loses consciousness. Um, and Frollo flees the scene and she ends up getting framed for his, uh, Phoebus's murder and she gets hanged for it. Um, just, uh, despite Quasimodo's attempt to hide her in the cathedral. So the sanctuary scene is also, um, from the book. Um, and then in the end, Quasi pushes Frollo off of the tower which kind of similar the Disney version of that is him falling from the tower, like we saw in the Lion King as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> I also saw that, like, yeah, Klaus's ending is also pretty dark in the book as well. Yes, uh, I think the the last scene of it is like a couple of years later. There's a they, like a disfigured skeleton of a hunchback or something, and it, it's laying in Esmeralda's grave with her, which considering the fact she was in love with Phoebus is, like, kind of creepy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, there's the whole, like, he meets someone, the first person that's nice to him, he falls in love with her. Um, Going back to the theme of religion, um, the Archdeacon and Frollo used to be the same character. So in the book, um, Frollo willingly takes in Quasimodo. And when they separate the characters, obviously they have the archdeacon being, like, as penance for for killing Quasi's mother, you need to, like, take care of this child. Um, And, uh, yeah, I kind of see this as a separation. Like, yes, religion is still being used for evil, but it's not done by the church, it's, it's one evil separation. person. It's one degree Wait. of separation away from the actual Catholic Church. Oh, to make it just so palatable. Wow. Just palatable enough to be spicy, but not too spicy. Yes.
0: Uh, yeah, I really enjoy that they do that because it, I feel like that also plays on the idea that it's not uh, any one religion's idea of God that's bad, and it's not anyone religion's ideals that are bad it's the way that people can twist them and the way that like whether it's twisted for your own means or whether it's twisted and you don't realize it but like that is the problem and not religion in general as someone who's not very religious I just really enjoy that kind of a take that like lets the establishment breathe and like it is maybe not a great establishment but that's not the whole problem
1: Vex, he read my mind. Yep, that was my that was my next point. Yeah, you nailed it. To to speak on on Frollo and like kind of looking at his character, some of his interactions with Quasimodo and also with Esmeralda, the amount of like projection and just trying to get into his mind and the self hatred that has to happen to project that much violence onto people, like when he's talking to Quasimodo. Um, it's right after the Festival of Fools, um, and he's like, you know, she's she's my friend, and he can kind of tell that Quasi has feelings for her. Um, and his he quotes, or I have his quote. It's uh, you idiot. This that wasn't kindness; it was cunning. She's a, and he uses the slur and says she's not capable of real love. And then he says, think, think of your mother, um, which is really fucked up because he. I don't. We can kind of go into um, what happens with his mother in the beginning, uh, but he says. But what chance could a poor, misshapen child like you have against her heathen treachery? And then um, he says, She will be out of our lives soon enough. I will free you from her evil spell. She will torment you no longer. Mm. And that felt like projection because he spends, like, the entire later half of the movie dealing with his, quote, unholy thoughts of Esmeralda and the lust that he has for her. And so... To see as soon as Quasi has an interest in her as well, he's he's kind of just projecting that and, and that maybe be like, how do you feel inside if that is what you're, pro- like, how yeah. you're talking to others? Um, and also he kind of, I have another quote um, where he's talking to Esmeralda and the cathedral scene uh, where he says, Uh, he uses a slur again it's just like rampant in the movie and he says you won't do well in stone walls Um, and then he sniffs her hair (laughs) which like kind of blew my mind like this was a it was a film for kids and just men sniffing hair is okay to be in a Disney movie Um, (laughs) but he says
0: oh go ahead oh I just wanted to bring up that, uh, that scene that I had talked to you about earlier but if you have another quote go off
1: Oh, it was just the the same uh, kind of... He says that you don't do well on stone walls. He sniffs her hair, and she, like, pulls away from him and is like, what are you doing? And he says he was imagining a rope around her beautiful neck, and she says, I know what you were imagining. And he calls her a clever witch, um, which I thought was a nice nod because in the book, um, Esmeralda, one of her charges was witchcraft. They, like, got her to falsely confess. Um, So maybe it wasn't, like, a nod to that, but I did enjoy the... The parallel there, just do the witchcraft, yeah. <laughs> he, Oh, yeah, for sure. Just, I mean, and that shows the mentality, then. Uh, but he's he blames her for the un- unho- unholy thoughts that he's having. He says, just like your kind, to twist the truth, to cloud the mind with unholy thoughts. Oh, yeah, so he takes zero responsibility for the stuff that he feels shame over because of religion as a religious leader which is kind of just yeah (laughs)
0: yeah i feel like that mentality is still like so pervasive today that like when he was saying that stuff and when she was like no i know what you were thinking and he's just like "Mm, no you don't that wasn't my fault that was your fault and i'm just like why do i feel like i've had this conversation like 17 times in my life already like why is that mentality still so prevalent even though it's not like it's not always from like a good Christian boys or whatever, but just the idea that like mm, I'm attracted to you, but it's not my fault; it's your fault, and you should stop it.
1: it yeah, one hundred percent perpetuated, and that's like the, the misogyny, the misogyny <laughs> of it all. Your attractiveness or my attraction to you is it's your, your fault. fault. Yeah. yeah, and it's perpetuate. Like that's why I like that we're kind of opening this dialogue because it's things that maybe you miss watching it as a kid, but you this it's normalizing it. Yeah, And you internalize it. And so, yeah. <laughs> Big um, oof.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. And I also really enjoy seeing, like, I, going into this, watching this again, Um, I brought in a lot of just wanting to look at this from a more modern lens, I guess. Like, not looking at it like Child Me did, but looking at it like Grown Me is. And yeah, um, yeah. The religion that Frollo uses to disguise all of the things that he wants, because I read him as just being like so proud that he can't admit that he has done anything wrong or that there's anything wrong with him because he is the best, he is the strongest, because he is the most devout member of this religious community, and I think that really shows in the scene where, like. I don't remember the name of the song, but Frollo is alone in his rooms, and all of the imagery on screen is very red and very bright, and he's, like, ranting Mm -hmm. into the fireplace about how much he loves Esmeralda, and how much he lusts after her, and how if he can't have her, then no one can. Like, if she can't be mine, then she will die. And that whole scene, it just felt like, ooh, you are in the closet with your own Like, just your normal heterosexual desire to have sex with somebody else, but you are not allowing yourself to experience that natural human thing. So you're just twisting it and using your religion to say, well, I'm still righteous and she is evil because of it. And like when one of the guards comes in, there's a little bit of in the song and in the color of the screen, it like diminishes a little bit because someone is there and someone is watching. But like once that guard goes away... It is right back in full force Like nothing even happened Because there's a little bit of shame there But not enough And like when he gets to the climax of the song After he's done like ranting and raving And the fire goes out and the whole scene goes back into cool blues, and it's just like, ooh, now you're all sticky with this gross sin that you've just done, but of course it's not your fault. It's, it's all her fault, because you can't possibly have anything bad about you. You're just this perfect religious icon.
1: He even goes so far as to say, like, let me purify you, like, or something yes. to that effect where, like, my dick will make you holy and you'll be okay. <laughs> and then because we'll, like, I'm I'm assuming it's like, let me maybe even marry you and make an honest woman out of you so I feel better about the lust that I hold over like, for you. Yeah. But j- he he says that like multiple times, like l- let me save you, basically with this fucking holy dick. I hate it. <laughs> I wonder if that's part
0: of the reason why he like why Frollo as a character went into politics instead of going hard into religion, because he definitely feels very strongly about religion. But he isn't the deacon in the movie, like. In that he's definitely like he feels he, more independent. Well, that's the thing. Like he not only is getting to roam the countryside and command the captain of the guard or whatever, but he is also free to have relations with other people and actually have a marriage. And maybe like he noticed that own desire when it, within himself and was like, mm, I could go into the clergy, or I could have all of this power and also still let me have the sex that I've been looking for can't have yet because I'm not married yet.
1: Honestly, I feel like that is... I don't want to say generous to his character. Valid? <laughs> like I mean, like, I imagine back in the day, like, it was kind of, like, just understood that you were Catholic and that you were a devout believer and if you wanted to be anyone in society you had to at least perform that behavior and he learned how to use that performance of that behavior to benefit himself politically. And that was always his goal. At least in my mind, I could see that. Yeah. Maybe for him, he also uses his power. He's very like, I mean, genocide where these are unholy people. So I'm going to like save. I'm purifying the world. And it's like projecting your own bullshit onto other people. And then to think that by, taking their lives away, you're making the world a better place. And it's like, instead of just facing your own demons, you're taking care of other people's for them uh-huh. by just, yeah. So the, the power that comes from that, but my, my favorite thing with his, <laughs> his character, are actually his last words. Um, it's the only time where the movie like directly quotes the Bible. Um, I mean, I guess kind of thankfully, but (laughs) he says, uh, and he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pits of hell. Um, He's, this is like the first instance where he's directly misusing the word of God to justify his, like his hate and his symbolic death, like where he is the one dying, <laughs> so, or being thrown into yeah, the fiery the, pits. <laughs> exactly, the wicked will be plunged into the fiery pits of hell, and he. The backdrop is dramatic reds, and he quite literally falls. Um, so that that's beautiful, I think. Like the real evil, even I have my thoughts on on religion, specifically like organized religion. But the real evil was the misuse of that, um, to you know condemn others. Yeah. Which hello. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um I, then, that. I had something to say with religion, but um it content warning abortion first. Um, so I saw some stuff about how this movie is supposedly anti-abortion. Um, I think it's mostly referencing the scene at the beginning where the archdeacon says that Frollo can't kill the baby. Yeah, some backup if you haven't heard this, the movie kind of starts with, uh, I, I don't even actually know where it starts. There's a scene where, uh, Quasimodo's mother, uh, is running from Frollo and he's on horseback and I think it's raining and he's just, he's doing what he does, uh, killing people of color and he kills this woman and she falls on the stairs but she has a baby he thought i think he thought she had bread or she had stolen something, something like that. um but the thing in her arms was a child and then it's you said the deacon of the church is that his title archdeacon. archdeacon he comes out and he's like basically you've done i mean this is an evil thing the way you can kind of make up for that is taking care of the child because he was gonna just like dump quasimodo into a well he's like literally holding this baby above a well and the archdeacon's like no Yes. And also the, the ableism that we, I guess, see in, in uh, with, he, because he does, he's disfigured and he kind of says it's because of the sin of the mother, um, or that's like, at least I felt that was insinuated. I don't remember if he said it directly. Um, it's, I I think you could assume. Yeah. <laughs> so Infer just, just more of like religion supporting genocide. And well, I uh, was going to say just. They, they, that's basically the basis for the argument that the movie is anti-abortion. But, I mean, in this podcast, we, we are pro-choice. So, just full disclosure. But, (laughs) um, uh, I feel like, honestly, what this movie does is it reflects the church's actions with regards to abortion more clearly than anything I've ever seen. They stop the killing of the baby, as they say, and then they do nothing Quasi's raised by a fucking abuser. Piece of shit garbage human that he knows is garbage. He already saw that he tried to kill him as a baby. The Archdeacon's also presumably either living in the church or in a building close by, because that's how, like, the priesthood works. Or he spends the majority of his time in the church. What is he doing to support Quasi and help him beyond the initial saving? Not a damn thing. That's, they don't, like, we don't care what happens to you as long as you survive. You're alive now. <laughs> and I don't want that to to maybe be taken the full way and say, like, oh, what are you saying, like, you should have let Frollo kill him? No, I don't think that should have happened at the beginning. That was a baby. Um, maybe the Archdeacon was, like, a better option for a... <laughs> but that would, I guess, be taking the responsibility away from Frollo. But he doesn't do anything to ensure Quasimodo's taken care of even though he's also in the cathedral with them. So he just kind of watches the abuse happen and doesn't care, which also kind of speaks to me. <laughs> I, w- I won't finish that, but we, we know. We all know. <laughs> yeah. Um, So, wow. So, yeah, religion, obviously, the the biggest underlying thing, the Feast of Fools was actually a real um, event that that was held to kind of it was just parodying uh, ecclesiastical ritual and cardinal elections. Um, But in in the scene, there's also something that was an actual, actual law. Um, It kind of stemmed. Hold on. I'll read my notes directly. Actually, Um, there's a scene where. They're after Esmeralda, Uh, after the Feast of Fools. They kind of decide they're, you know, going to go after her and kill her. And Quasi hides her in the cathedral and declares sanctuary. Um, He just yells, sanctuary! And is there, I think, am I remembering there's a part where they're all kind of chanting sanctuary or something? That's maybe towards the end. There are two different Um, points.
0: There's one point where the Archdeacon claims sanctuary, or not the Archdeacon, um, the man with the horse claim sanctuary for Phoebus her. Phoebus. Oh, Phoebus Phoebus yeah. <laughs> yeah. Phoebus oh, claims sanctuary this. for her oh, and then at band. the end uh, at the end when Quasi is holding her up and yells sanctuary when like she they thought she was dead or she was just like very knocked out or something and that's when the yeah. crowd is there with the pitchforks screaming sanctuary because they were all there to watch her burn but then once she's saved they're alightened like, mm, No, you're right. Let's, uh, riot?
1: Riot. Yeah, I wanted to talk about um, the mob mentality and how that's shown. That's also, I feel like, a a pretty major theme. Um, It's shown very blatantly as, like, the mass opinion of Quasimodo changes, like, three different times in one scene where he's down for the Feast of Fools, where first they're kind of shocked at his appearance, and then Esmeralda's like, hey, no, he's cool. And they're like, yay, you're awesome. And then he becomes the, the King of the Fools or whatever title that is. Yeah. Um, and they start, like, hating him again and throwing things at him, which part of that the ceremony was, like, he he was being made to represent the, the higher religious um, people. And so the crowd is kind of throwing things at him, and it's just the mob mentality shifts so blatantly back and forth based on who's talking. Um, so Esmeralda kind of gets them to calm down in the middle of the two outbreaks where they're upset and towards the end of it. Um, and then Phoebus is able to kind of get them to be more revolutionary towards the end, uh, but Frollo obviously is able to direct them in a different way where they're they're being hateful and they're booing. Um, so it's just a...
0: Yeah, yeah and family. I like how also Esmeralda and Frollo both have a lot of experience with turning crowds like that. Frollo, I think, well, I don't know. Frollo has a lot of Uh, experience with these people sort of already being on his side and so leaning into the religion helps a lot and Esmeralda has a lot of experience with this crowd kind of hates me how can I make them listen to me anyway
1: So I did have some notes that I thought were interesting on Sanctuary but it was like a real religious custom in medieval Europe and fugitives could escape like the death penalty by claiming sanctuary in a church. The catch was usually that you had to go into permanent exile after doing that. Um, Slash. It was also expected that you convert to Christianity if you weren't already a Christian. Um, But the concept of sanctuary actually predates Christianity. It goes back at least as far as Greek and Roman temples that offered protection to fugitives. Um, And early Christian churches adopted this to compete with pagan temples, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, And by the end of the fourth century, sanctuary was a part of Roman imperial law. Um, Let's see. Wow. Um, Basically, the idea was that churches are like a safe and protected space, consecrated churches, and so it would be inappropriate to exercise acts of like force or violence. Um, And many of the church leaders throughout the Roman Empire thought that the church, or or thought that, like, I guess society was too concerned with punishing criminals as opposed to restoring the moral balance between the wrongdoer and God, which I thought was interesting. Um,
0: That feels, I have done no research, but it feels similar to the way that we deal with, like, with consecrated ground and... Uh, the u.s and the uh, the different takes on like demon mythology or um, or vampires or what have you that they can't step on consecrated ground because no violence is supposed to happen there like churches Uh, are a sacred space for that
1: yeah i've seen that with vampires and, and stuff you hide in the church because they can't get you there Wow, it's just like glorifying churches is this hyper-safe space, but, like, meanwhile, people of color aren't safe in church. Yeah. So, <laughs> I say people of color. I specifically mean black people, but um, just to not water down that that issue. But <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Um, do we have any thoughts on Clopin? Or Clopin? Clopin. Got Clopin. Huh? Oh, the huh. <laughs> uh, well, puppeteer as the narrator. Because he, he, his, his role in this movie is considered the, the narrator. Not so fun fact, he is also voiced by a white person. Uh, I, it doesn't surprise me, but I'm always disappointed.
0: Yeah, I'm mad about it. I'm just full of rage. <laughs> it's fine.
1: It's um, like a whole movie where white people are criminalizing people of color, and you choose to voice these characters of color that you're using to highlight the issue with white people. <laughs> like... yeah, um, I liked him as the narrator, I guess. I don't know if I had an opinion about it.
0: <laughs> I do. I personally really enjoy the idea of Clubon. I think that he is a very interesting character. Um, and... Just like, I don't know, like his characterization is fun and whimsical and feels like it's supposed to represent the rest of the Romani clan that is in this town, um, apart from Esmeralda, because Esmeralda is clearly like her own defined person. And so I find it really interesting that it's like, oh, we like Esmeralda, we're supposed to um, feel sympathy towards her and. Generally, like be on her side in things, and that leads into a feeling of oh, we generally sympathize with the Romani in this movie um, and care about the way that they are treated and their plight. And then you see Phoebus and Quasi show up in the underground city that Esmeralda specifically invited them to and didn't really explain a whole lot of you know what to do once you got there. And as soon as they show up, Clopin is then leading the charge on mm, yeah here's some people who aren't from who who aren't a part of our clan who've found our secret place that we are supposed to be safe in we need to murder them immediately and not give them the chance to ask any questions and it's just like that kind of the i enjoy the way that that gives an insight into the duality of these are people that you care about and these are people that you want good things for them in this world, but also, they will be vicious back because this world has been vicious against them for so long. That, like, Clubon is a fun-loving character, as far as we know, for the most of the movie, and then that scene happens and it's just like, everything changes immediately, because they have been... The guards and the people running the France at that point have just been coming for them so hard that they can't afford to have tolerance for it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Just humanizing everybody.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And giving everyone a complex like, viewing them in a complex manner, which is so fucking important.
1: I want to touch a little bit on Phoebus Um And I had this thought and I didn't know if it was like too much of a reach where he's in the military. He works his his way up to, I don't remember what his title is. I think captain. Um, and he, he, you know, obviously this comes like he's, he's decked out. He looks like he's, he's not poor. Um, so he's taken (laughs) care of. Uh, and then he meets, he meets Esmeralda. And I feel like in a way she plays his like manic pixie dream girl kind of because she comes into his life and suddenly, the job he's had this whole time isn't okay. and what he's been doing this whole time isn't okay and he he kind of switches sides, but I also he, I wanted to give him more credit where I didn't know if he would have had that switch regardless when faced with the very extreme like set this house with a family in it on fire, which I want to talk talk about a little later because oof that scene um, or if she was a large catalyst for his character development. But he also shows the importance of an ally, and I, I feel like you could, I, I don't know, the crowd listens a lot more when he is there. And so it, I think the importance of, like, white people using their privilege, acknowledging their privilege, working for the cause, and being allies. Um, but I, I, I felt like Esmeralda was definitely, like, a catalyst for his, his attitude change and his character development. I will say, though, he, Phoebus has not been in Paris the whole time for this. I'm pretty sure he's, like, coming from off somewhere else doing Yeah, Yeah, I will say things. military, going to military, like, maybe it got way more extreme when he got under Furlough's command, but I... Well, I mean, sh- they, ha- I a guess part I don't of know a that much about military history, but I <laughs> think that, like, yeah. in the military, Phoebus seems to have very strong morals about, like, we have, like, enemy troops, but we don't hurt civilians. Like, that seems to be, like, a general attitude of, like, the so-called, like, honorable warrior. Like, I'll yeah. I'll kill you if you're trying to kill me, but yeah. we leave the innocents alone. And, like, so I think him coming to Paris, he's following orders by going to Paris, but as he's going along, I think, yeah, Esmeralda is a catalyst to change, but I don't know how much... How much, was mm-hmm. how much of it he would have been okay with even yeah. if she weren't. Yeah, I see. I definitely, yeah, I agree with that. So it depends on how much, how much of the benefit of the doubt you want to give a blonde white man in this scenario. <laughs> a blonde <laughs> white, white man. It's the importance of rebellion and questioning leadership. A blonde white military man. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Um, well, yeah, so- that, I mean, just showing how fucked the military is. Um, for it to be an expectation that his captain just be heartless and follow orders despite the humanity of his victims like
0: i also find it interesting that they took like they named him phoebus they dressed him in bright gold armor um and phoebus is the greek god of light he's also the greek god of prophecy and poetry and music and healing which i think is an interesting role for a military captain to be playing in this but I also think that it is the only arguably the only way that they could have given Phoebus enough power to have that much sway over the people in oh, the yeah. prolo to be able to that affect any change in the story at all.
1: It also shows like he had to leave his position in the military to stand up for what he believed in. So mm-hmm. you, you have to like, cause there were plenty of soldiers, like n- no distinct facial feature, gray soldiers in the background that were just going with it. <laughs> yep. So you, yeah, you have to, to go against it. There's, I think to me that says there's like with the, the no good cops, like if you were truly a good person, how can you participate in this system? Oh, literally, my notes say all cops be like Phoebus. If you claim to be good cops, stop following corrupt orders and band together for justice for all. Literally. You're, like, <laughs> if you're holding my hand through the barrier instead of standing with me on the other side of it, fuck you. Like, yeah, let's see. Oh, I wanted to mention the house burning scene because that, like, fucked me up a lot. I did not remember it. and I'm like, maybe yeah. Childhood Deanna Rose for Press shit. that shit. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It just, it Go ahead. No, you go. Oh, I was just, it made me think they, I mean, they used to do that to black people pretty rampantly. Um, But in this, the characters were allowed to survive because of the actions of Phoebus where he, I mean, he one, refuses to do it and then two, kind of saves them from this burning building. Yeah, he refuses to do it and then Frollo's like, fuck you, this house is going to burn. He takes the torch and burns it. Yeah. And I just, just again, shows the importance of intervention from white people who know what, what's going on is wrong. Um, like Jewish folks and slaves were hidden and saved by people. And, um, it, it just shows the necessity of human cooperation for survival, especially when you have like outside aggressors. Yes.
0: Oof, that's so hard. I was going to make a very similar point because that scene for me reminded me a lot of, um, some stories from the Holocaust and the things the Nazis would do to people who uh, were hiding the people they wanted to put in camps. Um, and it just, that scene felt like the visual representation of those things. Um, and I realize it is a different situ- situation. It was a different point in the history. Um, it just, it paralleled very strongly for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, yeah. While we're talking about police and such cab, um, Yes, ACAB. <laughs> but um, one thing I wanted... I had a, a little note about the reception of the movie. Um, so the reception overall was positive, um, but the French particularly um, really felt it. Like, they liked it, obviously, because it's a beautifully shot movie of Paris. You know, they love that. But... <laughs> Uh, It coincidentally mirrored a real-life incident from August 1995, so less than a year earlier, um, where French police stormed a Parisian church and took away more than 200 illegal immigrants who were seeking sanctuary from deportation. Wow. Jesus. And (laughs) this movie was delayed. It was supposed to come out before that incident and was delayed. I forget why. Um, i I did read about it, but I forget why, and so it came out after this incident so
0: I love that because also like yeah, this movie wasn't made specifically in as a reaction to that, but you can still see evidence of those things building up, and it mm-hmm. so it still feels like that was a commentary on what was happening, and it just yeah what if we just had a fucking Avengers movie that made that strong of a comment about our current society.
1: The, the fact that these themes are so relatable, like, Esmeralda says, you mistreat this poor boy the same way you mistreat my people. You speak of justice, yet you are cruel to those most in need of your help. And Furlow says, silence, and Esmeralda says, justice. And that gift is being used today. I, Sarah, yes. <laughs> Sarah actually tagged me in one recently that was Trump saying silence and a, a black protester saying justice um it's just like i, I feel like media definitely took a, a turn and started shying away from themes like this um i mean the 90s were a big pop in like diverse media i feel well, big you know i'm putting quotes around that like um but a start and then i it started to kind of shy away from that um but the fact that we're talking what it's the It's almost the anniversary of this movie, like 20, 30 years or something. And it's still that prevalent to where you can look at it and see yourself today. It's almost 24. Almost 24. (laughs) (laughs) Happy almost 24th birthday. Um, um, My favorite character in this, I do love the gargoyles, obviously. But Notre Dame Cathedral itself is a living character. Um, in the movie, and that's shown like there are scenes where it zooms into the facial expressions of these statues in in along the cathedral um, and the use of lighting and the color of tapestries to to show them the mood. Um, and it's just or the scene where Esmeralda is going into Quasi's room for the first time and there's light hitting the colored pieces of glass and the room comes alive the animation and the the sound effects they used it, it's all just it's, it's very much a living creature and I really appreciated that and it's like I said it's, they use it like the cathedral is reacting with you like the cathedral has statues that shame the fuck out of Fro- or Frollo when he's having like an outburst and it's yeah. Yes. Um so I really I really appreciated that. And then to quite literally, some of the gargoyles come to life and are Quasi's companions, which either they literally come to life because this is a Disney film or Quasi's alone and found friendship in gargoyles. So whether they actually come alive to life or not, the cathedral is still a living character. Well, funny you should mention that. When I was reading about the differences between the book and the movie one of the reasons why they added the gargoyle characters was, like, they wanted a little bit more comic relief, since it is a, a darker story. But the book describes the cathedral as a living character. And so they they literally, I think they said, the gargoyles he talked to as if they were his friends. And so they literally made gargoyle friends for him. So, yeah, you were, yeah, 100%. It's just beautiful. I, I really, this movie for, I mean... It doesn't, it does some things wrong. Like we've, we've talked about the, I, but I don't know the themes in the movie. I feel like they're there for a reason. You're supposed to notice them and think they're wrong. And so this is a dialogue. I think we're not, we're pointing out like they're not so subtle things, um, but still important to talk about, like letting your kid watch this versus letting your kid watch it. And then starting a dialogue, it goes from something they, you know, it, it, it opens their critical thinking and they're able to recognize these situations and situations that they're going to come across in life. Um, And you can, yeah, so it's just important where like I we're going to definitely talk about movies where it's going to be more subtle things like rape culture and misogyny um where these were more I think very blatant themes which again like the some of the earlier the stuff in the 90s was just it was it felt like a tide was kind of turning with what the media was allowing and then like I said it kind of shied away from that and I feel like we've been kind of trying to make strides back in that direction. Yeah. Um And yeah, so obviously, like I said, the themes here are very blatant, uh, but still important to talk about them because maybe a kid would not understand like the God complex of the main character (laughs) and the use of religion to enforce racism and genocide. Um, Um,
0: another thing on that point of just like talking about this with children who are watching it is that a thing that I have noticed, not just in this movie, but in a lot of animated films that I really enjoy, um, that they do contribute to some of my own body dysmorphia because uh, I look at Esmeralda and I am gonna idolize that character because she stands for justice and she is speaking out against all of these things and she is a wonderful character. But also, the way that she is drawn is impossible for a human to be that shape because she is animated and that makes sense. But like as a kid seeing that movie, you don't understand that. And so I'd spend my whole life going, okay, well, why is my body not doing that thing? And I think that that is less, again, less about this movie and more about just animation in general, but like being able to look at those things and say, oh, Hey, who do you identify with this in this film? And what, like, what does that say about you? But also like, what is different and why is it different?
1: I feel like in a lot of these movies, and I say these movies, I mean, like, this era of animation. And as as we get more modern, there is more diversity with it. But I feel like for women in these films, it's either, like, you're super-duper skinny or you're a plump, matronly woman. And that's about it. I mean, I guess you could make it full circle and be, like, maiden mother crone and say that there's, like, the old hag represented as well. But mostly I mean, I'm talking light. about, like, in in purely body shape diversity. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. either super-duper skinny and about the same height, or they're, like, shorter, plump, matronly women. With this, with Quasimodo, as a kid, I remember relating more to... Quasimodo um with the way he was viewed because I I mean we I feel like it's kind of a common experience to be bullied but I also struggled with body dysmorphia and so the way Quasimodo feels about himself um and the way he lets that like navigate the way that lens help navigate his relationships like the way he views himself you know the way you view yourself affects how you view yourself in your relationships um so I definitely related to that, and then to have Esmeralda as the alternative protagonist where she looks like that, it's like, <laughs> def- <laughs> definitely fucked. Yep. Um, and also just the way they draw her and, uh, and her striking eyes, and it just kind of, I don't know, the, they wanted- the fetishization is, is definitely there, I feel. The Disney wiki specifically <clears throat> mentioned that they wanted a huskier sounding voice. For Esmeralda. I looked at some of the art and her character design changed. They did have her as like a heavier set matronly woman and they just trimmed her down. I was like scrolling and as you scrolled it got to the more modern depictions and it she just shed shed her body wow. <laughs> as she went. And then all of a sudden they decide decided to make her a woman of color because they were also drawing her white. <sighs> Oof. I do.
0: <laughs> that being said, I do enjoy for Esmeralda specifically having a character that is hypersexualized by many characters in this film, and she is still able to say no to Frollo and to Quasi in terms of having Oof. a relationship, and like follow the person that she actually wants to be with, which is Phoebus. So mm-hmm. I, it feels a little bit empowering in that. But mm-hmm. definitely need yeah. some more
1: diversity in here. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah,
0: <laughs> I do love how um, love and also ouch how on point Quasi's conversations with himself are about his own dysmorphia and getting down about himself about the way he looks.
1: I love that they they show this person. Like, he's a fully consenting adult, like, and he's worthy of having a relationship just because he looks outside of, like, norms. So I I like that they show that. It made me set, like, one, guys, just embrace Polly and, like, (laughs) (laughs) Phoebus and Esmeralda and Quasi can all be together. Um, But he just kind of steps down because, obviously, she would choose the literal knight in shining armor over him. And then they have a sequel where they give her, like, this, this, like... She's not drawn as blatantly sec- like sexy as Esmeralda. I mean, she's still like Aryan and, and <laughs> like femme and whatever. Um, so they do show him with a partner, but I like that they they give him a depth of character. Like he's he's a man. Like he grew he you know he's been by himself, but he still he sees people that he he likes and he wants relationships with them. So it, it bummed me out that he kind of just stepped down from that. But at the same time, Esmeralda was like never super into him so I do like that they show him respecting her boundary. Um so yeah that's that's good. I just like that they gave you know, show show people for what they are. Like we're all if you're a consenting adult, explore relationships and like yeah. Yes. He's yeah, disabled. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also like um He's disabled. He's got the limp. It's kind of hard to, to walk around. So his mobility is like swinging from ropes, which is fucking iconic. So you find what and works for you and you do the coffee. shit out of him. Flying <laughs> 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 it's just, it's really cool. It's like they show him walking and he's, he's walking with a limp. He has this, this back thing. And, um, but on the ropes, he, he can hold Esmeralda and scale a building. Like, his ability isn't lessened, it's just different. Like, his strengths lie elsewhere, and he I think that's really those He those bells. He's, he's got is... that upper body strength.
0: He's like, <laughs> let him wear something more attractive, because he is swole.
1: Yeah. It's just all yes. in his
0: arms. All of it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I like it that he's just as adventurous and just as... Like, do you trust me? And, like, he he embodies everything that a Disney prince does. And I think that's why I was bummed that he didn't, like, in the initial movie and end up with a love interest or even someone. Like, I just imagine Esmeralda and Phoebus kind of going off and doing their own thing and he's still kind of alone. Yeah. And the fact that the sequel is largely him finding a partner. It's like, one— seek friendship. It doesn't have to be a romantic thing. Like I want him to have a community, not just someone he falls in love with. Also um, a prize. A woman is not like a prize you get for being a good person. Li- literally. Yeah. So if anything, that's the, the best thing to come out of it is he respected her boundaries and stepped down. Um, I just wish he had a more conclusive ending that involved him be, well, I guess his abuser is dead. So it's only up from there, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> and maybe it's assumed that it's easier for him to navigate society now. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd still like him to have some friends yeah, that I feel aren't like the half still... After
0: that film includes, and the city realized that they were being bigoted, and they were gonna try to stop doing that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I feel like the the crowd is generally on on his side towards the end of it, or just on the side of rather Esmeralda, but he gets the acclaim by association. Yeah. But whatever works, man. Lift your friends up. That's the whole <laughs> point. Phoebus lifts his friends up with his white privilege. Azorhead lifts her friends up with like her caring and compassion. And Quasimodo supports in any way he can, and that's how he lifts his friends up. And his so like, giant he also lifts them up with his, his giant. Arms. <laughs> 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 yes. he also literally lifts his
0: friends up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love it. Oh, what a
1: good movie. Yeah. It really was and like I definitely I mean, we we've kinda of talked about everything here but it's um look, can we briefly just for funsies talk about the music? <gasps> oh, I think I the music's incredible and they use it so well to get the tone and stuff because kids don't necessarily I feel like they they know and they, they feel, um, when they're reacting to things, but it lets you it just gives them I don't know, it's more like this no the movie's music it definitely sets the tone the choir just incredible yeah and the songs I feel like the standouts are God help the outcasts and also out there yes. Oof, yeah um,
0: oh I got chills just thinking about out there oh
1: <laughs> it's it's very well done I want song in, in musical theater terms like very it's, he wants to go out there and like just it oh, it tugs on your heartstrings in just the right way
0: and and then matched with the oh, cinematography wanna, yeah. of just the like uh the, the, the sweeping views the, yeah the landscape or the well the view of
1: paris really is just oof i have the so movement beams. in the buildings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um also i feel something Like, I mean, animation does this in general, like that you watch where the background colors and the music change to reflect the tone. But I feel like that's a good time where if you're watching this with a kid, either pause it or I don't know, there's a way to discuss that because it's a it's an audio and, you know, the context of the story as well as the visuals down to colors. And it's a good time to be able to teach them to identify feelings like pause it and say, Like, how do you think Kwasi is feeling in this moment? Like, oh, yeah, you see the red background. You see, you know, it's like, it's just giving, like I said, audio and visual manifestations of that emotion. And I think it could be a good teaching moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like, to identify and and discuss. And then also, why do you think he feels that way? How are you feeling right now? Um, Yeah, like little tools that are hidden in there. Yeah. I think... Just a little bit of a meta-analysis, like, Esmeralda sings God Help the Outcasts, and it's it's a beautiful song, and it's kind of a petition. She's, like, singing it in Notre Dame, just for anybody who hasn't seen the scene. It's worth looking up. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the people end up doing the most to help I don't know. I guess the archdeacon lets her claim sanctuary, and he tries to stop Frollo when Frollo comes in to try to kill her. The fact that the religious figure is just completely out of the picture when any time there's a conflict, like, he's there to say, no, nope, she declared sanctuary. It's real. That's it. Well, I mean, he does get pushed down the stairs by Frollo. Oh, that's true. <laughs> okay, so he's literally out. But still, I mean... Things happen. And these churches that are preaching the right way to live and preaching like they're they're there to help the community. They're there to be a pillar of hope. And he's just a wall for most of the conflict, um, aside from making like you said, the where it ties in with abortion, aside from making this guy keep this child um, that he, he doesn't help out in any other way. He doesn't. Rece- what is he? They don't ever show him with Quasimodo, I guess. But like, where where is his interaction with that? How is he reacting and responding to the public? He's seen Frollo fucking killing people. Like, what what have He's you been Frollo, doing aside like- from upholding an image? Yeah, and then yes, he does get pushed down the stairs. So I'll, I'll like get him off the hook for that. But you've done nothing thus far. I doubt you were going to get proactive now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just. It's a very it's a it's a overtly religious song and that was a deliberate choice actually too. Um The song that was originally there is called someday and it was moved to the credit sequence and sung by an R&B group called All for One. Um, So yeah, fun fact there. But it's they they wanted a more religious song for the scene since it was sung in a church and like the backdrop was inherently pretty religious yeah so but i'm trying to think if there's like a more overtly religious disney song um i mean i guess there's choirs like singing in these songs right or am i imagining or did i'm like misremember? god help you out no i mean in any of them like throughout the movie is are there like not really in the songs um
0: like I, I mostly, mostly
1: in the score. Yeah, and I think that is inherently a religious feel. So the fact that it's present in the score at all is, like, adding to that theme and feel. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to find that type of... And I say chorus, I don't mean, like, like background singers. Like, it's straight up, like, it sounds kind of like a church choir, I think. I need It's to, a classical-sounding choir, and it sounds like... I don't know. As a as a person who's sung in like choirs, like classical choirs, and done like sacred rep, I don't know. It didn't sound overtly religious to me on its own, but if you put it in front of a church, I'll go. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it takes so, place in a church, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so like you're, it's just you're, that, you're subtle, the- that subtle. That oh, yeah. subtle. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's beautiful and it definitely it sets the scene. Like I I mean I don't know if you've like I know you have and Vex I think you have like just been in a like Catholic cathedral. Yeah. You get I think it gets that ambiance very, very well. well. I will say, yeah, I was gonna say it's very grandiose, but yeah. I mean the Notre Dame is is depicted in a pretty grandiose way. Like he's scaling it, it's a huge building. The bells are huge, it's beautiful inside, like the detail. And so it's a grandiose music to fit that. And I feel like if they had done I don't know, boring little hymns, it wouldn't have been the same. But like this. Yeah. Dude, Alan Megan knows how to work a score. I'm gonna say. Oh it. no. Alan works. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. As a pair, yeah, definitely. It's worth noting Stephen Schwartz said, well, maybe it's not worth noting, but I thought it was interesting. Stephen Schwartz said that this is a a score that he did not want to go to Broadway. That's funny, because I don't think it went to Broadway, but they did make a musical. They did make a musical. (laughs) It followed more closely to the book. They made it a little bit darker, Um, but to use the songs that Stephen wrote... He it's licensed under Musical Theater International for, like, school shows and stuff. Yeah. Um, I've seen
0: a version of the show that, I don't know if it's based off that script specifically, but it was, um, a uh, it wasn't set on a stage, it was set within a church, and you chose to follow different actors around, and so you could go down to, um, the city of the Romani, where you could follow Frollo and watch him devolve in his study in just fits of rage. And at one point, everyone comes back together in the main body of the chapel, and it was very powerful and put you in the show, but I don't think... It was amazing to watch, it was amazing to experience, but I still don't think it got the message and themes across as
1: well as this movie does. Yeah. Um, the lesson, uh, I was just reading like the Disney summary of the movie and everything, um, and they say, it's a story of love, acceptance, and what it means to be a hero. Um, so... I was just wondering like what you guys' thoughts are, if you feel like those shine through how you think those, uh, themes, which is kind of what they're pointing out as the themes, as opposed to like how fucked up religion is, um, (laughs) (laughs) or organized religion rather. And I I say that because I, I mean, I think religion is a beautiful thing. I think there's like room for all of them. I think when you organize them and they start getting culty, uh, (laughs) then there's a problem. Um, so, yeah, love, acceptance, and what it means to be a hero. And to me, I mean, the love and acceptance part, you know, which is, I feel like it's very, the shallow, like, you you don't look like me, but I still accept you as far as him being disfigured. But also the these people of color that are just trying to exist and escape prosecution, um, just loving and accepting them, which is never a question for Quagimodo because he knows what it's like to not be loved and accepted. Um, and, also- and the rhetoric he has, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I also think that, like, despite Frollo's best efforts, that it doesn't seem like Quasi sees what is different about them. Like, he isn't focused on that, and I know that we see Frollo, like, trying to instill those messages in Quasi, but they seem to slide off and don't stick because he's just like, well, they are people, is the way that I saw them. yeah. That
1: absolutely and he sees like the festival of Fools. he looks forward to it every year and that's just a celebration where these people come out and it's colorful and it's it's warm and he can feel the energy from the street up at the roof of the cathedral and so of course he loves these people like they're the people he sees living life in a colorful community-based way which is all he wants um so yeah um and then, what it means to be a hero to me, I took this like uh, with where it's shown with Phoebus, where you ignore maybe what the law is telling you or what your orders are, and you follow your heart, which is to just or you love and protect people in you. Quasimodo's case, even too, where his the only parental figure he's ever known is yes. telling him to hate these people, and he goes, "No, I see myself in them, and I see like they can see themselves in me like we're all the same. I'm not gonna let you make me hate them. Yes, or even we're different, but our humanity is a common denominator. Yeah, that's it. And Frollo ignores everyone's humanity. <laughs> um, yeah, so questioning questioning what you hear, questioning the norm and questioning what you're being taught to believe, like and my thing with the the question that I don't even like I you should question everything because <laughs> Yeah. I, and I genuinely believe that even if you don't change your mind it's important to question it like because maybe it's not something you actually agree with it's just something that you've been fed through like you know classic Disney films your whole life and the huh.
0: thing is reaffirm your belief in the thing
1: Which isn't. yeah exactly
0: also can it's... I just say how fucking strong Quasi is like as a person to like he is raised by frollo he's raised by essentially an abusive parental type figure and still has the strength to stand up against that while he's still living in that situation like that is a kind of strength that is just phenomenal to me and i'm gonna start Mm -hmm. crying absolutely
1: do you cry your gay tears babe (laughs) I feel, um, he's, I mean, when you can relate, like he sees Frollo abusing these people and he knows what it's like to be on the other side of that abuse. And so of course he's going to stand with you. Exactly. Like the other side of, exactly. Yeah. I just,
0: yeah. From someone who has grown up with a parent who has not been the same, but been similar like that is still beyond my reasoning right now. And I don't talk to that parent anymore because I am not ready to handle that. But it's just, I can so clearly understand being raised with that and being trained to just make him not be angry anymore. And to just... Go along with it because he is the one in control. He is the one in power, and
1: actually yes. finding
0: a finding a way to have your own voice in that situation at all, much less standing up for it, is
1: and trusting your mind. own voice enough yes. to. Yeah, I I completely I can relate to that. Um, absolutely, yeah, and trusting your own voice when someone's constantly telling you your voice is wrong or. They just don't leave space for any other voice to be heard or to be right outside of theirs. And Furlough definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And real quick, I just realized, like, he's a parental figure to to Quasi just because he's, like, the only adult, I assume, that bothered to try to do anything to take care of him. Out but of guilt. <laughs> Quasimodo calls him master. Yeah. Like, yeah. He just probably just emphasizes the power imbalance whenever possible. And again, like, like Vex said, the, the strength to overcome someone. Oh God. It's The sad. strength to still have a light and to still, mm-hmm. to still see the good in people and the joy to still see the joy in life. Like to mm-hmm. still know, like to looking down at the festival of fools and saying like, I That's a beautiful thing, and that is how life should be. And to use that as hope as opposed to, like, easily falling into, you know, fuck these people, they're whatever Frollo is saying, or also just jealous. Like, that's never going to be my life. I'm never going to have that. He never gives up that hope. Never. And I, that's important. That's that's so important. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that might be good to end on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for listening to A Crack in the Classics. You can contact us at our email, classicscracked at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for listening.